Public Radio KMXT is supported by a grant from North Pacific Fuel, serving and continuing the tradition of excellent service to the community at three locations, Marine Dock at 715 Shelikoff Street, Gas and Go at the Y, and Gas and Go at Mill Bay. It's nearly 12 o'clock, and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, we are your public radio station, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where it is currently 51 degrees under overcast skies. Out at the airport, they are registering 71% humidity, southerly winds to 9 miles per hour, and 10 miles of visibility. Coming up on the Midday Report, it's time for the fisheries debates. Eight candidates running for statewide and nationwide office will be here in Kodiak today and tomorrow for this year's fisheries debates. Another storm is on its way to hit the same area that the last storm just hit, up in northwest Alaska. And a state, the state has a plan to build out a network of electrical vehicle charging stations. Those stories and more after national headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Strong rebound on Wall Street today. All major market indices end the day up roughly 2.5%. NPR's David Gura has more. The end of what has been an abysmal year for stocks is in sight. And in the coming weeks, investors will assess how companies have navigated a host of challenges, including a strong U.S. dollar and high interest rates. They'll also scrutinize their outlooks. Wall Street is looking ahead to new jobs data this week. Bond yields are down, which is good news for anyone who's holding bonds now. Last week, the yield on the 10-year Treasury was briefly above 4% for the first time in more than a decade. David Gura, NPR News, New York. President Biden's in Ponce, Puerto Rico, pledging $60 million in infrastructure aid to help Puerto Rico rebuild from Hurricane Fiona nearly two weeks ago. Thank you, Governor, for your partnership as we work together to help rebuild Puerto Rico. And I mean rebuild it all and rebuild it in a resilient way so you don't, when storms come again, which they will, they're not having the damage they caused before. Many across the island remain without power, the result of a crippled energy grid devastated by Hurricane Maria five years ago. NPR's Martin Costi has an update from recovery from Hurricane Ian. Fort Myers is in Lee County, where more than half of power customers are still waiting. Tavares Schley lives in the historically black neighborhood of Dunbar, and he's been cooking outside. Yeah, we ain't got no choice, man, but the grill. We, we ain't got no power, you know. Tap water is down to a trickle, and it's not safe to drink, so volunteers have been passing out bottled water throughout the city. Schley says even though this part of Fort Myers fared better than the beachfront, there's still a lot to do. What we're trying to do is come together as a neighborhood, start cleaning up before the city get here, because it's going to be a couple of days, maybe weeks, before the city get over here, you know. Martin Costi, NPR News, Fort Myers. 
Convoys of electricians, local and out-of-state, are working 12 to 20-hour days to restore power. Joe Canfield, a field superintendent for Carter Electric, describes what crews are up against. A lot of trees down, a lot of power lines down. The reports I'm getting back from my guys in the field is everything south of uh, Cape Coral is completely leveled. Fort Myers Beach is, as, as one guy put it to me, gone. The staff at Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquariums assessing Hurricane Ian's impact on marine conservation. Moat's president, Dr. Michael Crosby, says the health of coral reefs is in everyone's interest. Any area around the world that has barrier islands or coral reefs uh, offshore, that is Mother Nature's natural resiliency to storm waves. So imagine if you don't have a coral reef around the Florida Keys, you have 20-foot waves breaking on the keys themselves instead of on the coral reefs. Many scientists agree hurricanes are intensifying more quickly because of climate change. You're listening to NPR News. NPR News is presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor llama al 907-481-2400. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. Eight candidates in the running to be Alaska's next governor, senator, and U.S. House representative will be in Kodiak today and tomorrow for this year's fisheries debates. KMXT's Kirsten Dobroth has more. Monday's gubernatorial debate will be between Democratic candidate Les Guerra and former Governor Bill Walker, who's running as an independent. Current Governor Mike Dunleavy will not be at this year's fisheries debate, which is held annually in Kodiak. Dunleavy didn't attend the last gubernatorial fisheries debate back in 2018. Tuesday's lineup features two separate debates. All four candidates vying for Alaska's lone U.S. House seat will talk fish first. Those include Republicans Sarah Palin and Nick Begich and Representative Mary Peltola. Peltola won the seat as a Democrat during this summer's special election to replace the late Congressman Don Young. Libertarian Chris Bayh will also be in Kodiak on the debate stage. The Senate debate will be held after that between Democrat Pat Chesbro and incumbent Senator Lisa Murkowski, a Republican. Murkowski's Republican challenger, Kelly Shabaka, will not be in attendance due to a scheduling conflict, according to her campaign. This year's debates will be held in front of an audience at the Gerald C. Wilson Auditorium in Kodiak. They'll also be aired on KMXT. Monday's debate starts at 7 p.m. U.S. House candidates square off at 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday. The Senate debate starts after that at 8.15. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobroth. A new storm is on track to hit a portion of the area pummeled last month by the remnants of Typhoon Murbach. National Weather Service meteorologist Scott Berg says the new storm developing in Russia is anticipated to move north of the Siberian Peninsula toward Alaska midweek. And as it does that, it's going to bring some strong um, uh, southwesterly, south winds uh, into uh, basically areas from Norton Sound uh, north to Point Barrow. Berg says as the front makes it inland, winds will turn more westerly and some storm surge is expected. We're looking right now at um, it being basically minor coastal flooding, um, but there could be quite a bit of erosion uh, with the wind waves on top of the, uh, the surge that may occur. Berg says erosion could be worse due to damage already done by last month's major storm.
their defenses are down. Uh, the berms that were built up uh, over the years have all been um, damaged. So any uh, minor coastal flooding or um, high uh, surf in those areas could cause erosion issues uh, that will be a bigger impact than what they would normally be. A special statement from the National Weather Service says strong winds are expected to move into the eastern Bering Sea and Chukchi Sea Wednesday afternoon with an elevated risk of coastal flooding from the Bering Strait to Point Hope Wednesday night into Friday. It also says high surf is possible on south and west-facing shores of Norton Sound. A state plan to help build out a network of electric vehicle charging stations around the state has been approved by the Federal Highway Commission. The Federal Highway Administration, rather. As KUAC's Dan Bross reports, the OK puts the state in line for over $50 million in funding over the next five years. The Alaska Energy Authority and the State Department of Transportation are working together on the EV plan, by which up to $52 million federal dollars will be distributed in support of fast charging stations to facilitate more electric vehicle use in Alaska. Range anxiety is one of our, our biggest uh, issues or challenges for the adoption of EV, and so we want to try to el- eliminate that. Alaska Energy Authority Executive Director Curtis Thayer emphasizes it's uncertain how many fast charger projects the money will pay for. We don't know what the cost of the equipment is as of yet, and then also where we're placing it and what type of, of electrical work or what type of, uh, uh, of work that needs to be done prior to installing the electric charger. Thayer says the federal money can also be used to upgrade existing EV charging stations and help cover operation and maintenance costs. He says the plan's initial focus will be supporting EV charging stations between Anchorage and Fairbanks. The federal program stipulates stations capable of charging four EVs simultaneously located every 50 miles. Thayer says the state has received an exemption from the spacing requirement for a stretch of the Parks Highway where there aren't any viable year-round host sites. The gap there is about 80 miles from mile 135, which is just north of Trapper Creek, and it extends to Cantwell, which is mile 210. Thayer says the AEA anticipates putting out a request for proposals for EV charging stations, and selected hosts will have a significant portion of their costs covered. The program would fund 80% of the funding, and they would have to come up with 20% of the funding. Looking beyond Phase 1 of the EV plan, Thayer says additional highways and locations will be targeted for charging stations. Homer to Anchorage, and we also we have the Glen Allen Delta to Tope Peace. And then you have the marine highway system, Ketchikan, Sitka, Kodiak, Juneau. Thayer says rural Alaska is also part of the long-range plan. I'm talking the hub communities, Nome, Kosciuk, Bethel, Dillingham. The state's EV charging station plan will be updated annually over the next five years, and Thayer underscores that it's a living document, and the public is encouraged to provide input and feedback. The AEA is holding meetings on the EV plan around the state. In Fairbanks, in Dan Bross. Dozens of Ketchikan-area residents were students at a Pennsylvania boarding school before it closed in 1918. As KRBD's Reagan Miller reports for Orange Shirt Day, archived records show details about their lives and what happened to them after they left the school. The last day of September is recognized each year as Orange Shirt Day. It's in remembrance of the trauma caused by the forced relocation of indigenous people to residential boarding schools. 
Irene Dundas says the day is about recognizing the pain caused by residential schools. She's a cultural heritage specialist for Ketchikan's tribe, but she was speaking to KRBD outside of that role. So the awareness of Orange Shirt Day and um, of just recognizing that there is a history, you know, of historical trauma um, on the Native community and that um, if raising awareness and not trying to erase the past. She says there could be more than 30 Ketchikan area residents who went to Carlisle Indian School, a boarding school in Pennsylvania that operated for nearly 30 years. And some of them are not all Clinkett. They're Clinkett Haida and Simshan. And um, we are trying to work to try to locate the families. Researchers from the Carlisle Indian School Digital Resource Center and the Carlisle Indian School Project are working to connect families to more information about their loved ones who attended the school. And Dickinson College houses the records compiled for the Resource Center. KRBD obtained archived student records from the college's special collection, which included every Alaskan student registered at Carlisle before it closed. Twenty-six students had at least one address in Metlakatla, Ketchikan, Saxman, or on Gravina Island. Some of them appeared to have been adults at the time, in their early 20s, according to the records. After graduating, many of the students worked in Ketchikan. That includes Thomas Hanbury. His school records show that he worked as a carpenter in Ketchikan. Student Christopher Dalton from Metlakatla went on to work in the sawmill in Ketchikan when he graduated. And Patrick Verney worked in the Ketchikan printing office. The youngest student from Southeast Alaska was seven-year-old Margaret Maggie Jane Brown of Metlakatla. She graduated in 1913. The records offer a glimpse into the students' lives. Many had at least one parent who was deceased, left school due to poor health, or had no known home address. Several records show misspellings of Metlakatla and Ketchikan. Dundas says she's aware of the work being done to further identify those who attended residential schools, including Carlisle. They have a web page that they um, really did a lot of work on to try to help um, families and indiv- individuals look for their family members that had went to the East Coast. She says she has hopes that local families might one day learn more about their loved one's history. It's going to be a big, um, a big healing, you know, um, I guess maybe it's not even a ceremony. There'll be a, there will be some healing that needs to be done because it's really traumatic. But Dundas says there are still changes that need to be made today to keep moving forward. I feel like some of it isn't just something that has is happened, you know, a couple hundred years ago or a hundred years ago. More information about Alaskans who attended the school can be found from the Carlisle Indian School Project or at the Digital Resource Center. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. This summer, the National Branch of the Presbyterian Church issued a formal apology and made a commitment to pay $1 million in reparations for closing a church in Juneau in the 1960s. The Memorial Presbyterian Church had a native congregation led by Pastor Walter Sobolev. Presbyterian church leaders have determined that closing the church was an act of racism. Journalist Jocelyn Estes has a story about the apology in Indian Country Today. She spoke with KTOO's Yvonne Crumry. And I think that's one thing that's kind of interesting about this story is that it's a church closure that was the harm, while so many of it is focused on like the church coming in and doing harm. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that or anything to say about um, the fact that the church came in, was a force of assimilation, but then was run by Walter Soboloff and became a community center and then was taken away and how that 
impacted people? Well, I think the difference between what Walter Sobolev was doing and what uh, mainstream Presbyterian boarding schools and churches were doing is that he spoke in both Tlingit and English. And so, and, and, you know, he did give the message of God's love and God's mercy and, and, um, and encourage people to share his faith in the church and in God. But, um, my sense of things is that he was far from a negative force. I mean, people, people wanted to learn about this and they wanted to belong to a church. Their earlier spiritual modes of spirituality had been destroyed and people need that in their lives on some level. And he provided it in a way that was more palatable and more accepting and more loving than in other churches. So I think there's a big difference between what he did and what other churches did. And you mentioned that the closure of Memorial was devastating for the community here in Juneau. Can you tell me more about that? What it had, what impacts it had on the Lincoln community here? And this was back when the Juneau Indian Village um, was based in all the, in the flats, basically. And so it was quite a, it was a cohesive and kind of fairly extended neighborhood. And the church was right at the heart of it. And so right after the church was closed, there were two devastating events. One was developers in Douglas burned down the Douglas Indian village there. They condemned the land saying it was needed for development and then burned the village. And then the Juno Indian village was um, most of it was knocked down for urban renewal. And so you had these two, you know, they were segregated communities, but within themselves, within the communities, there was a lot of cohesion and community. And um, th- those two acts of development and, and renewal uh, were really hard. I mean, they dispersed the the native community basically. And the people I interviewed said it was shocking and some never went back to church. So it was a huge spiritual loss for for many people. When you look at Juno after the closure of Memorial Church and even up to today, what would you say the effects and the legacy of the closure are? And are we still living with those impacts today? Well, I think combined with the destruction of the Douglas Indian Village and the Juno Indian Village, I I think that the sense of cohesion and community that Alaska Natives felt um, in Juno is not as strong as it used to be. And um, I mean, it's it's growing, and a lot of people would. I mean, there is a community, and there is cohesion, but it's not to the extent that there was when uh, the church was there and when those two villages existed. Why did the overture and this whole process happen now after nearly 60 years? You know, I think it's just part of the language and cultural revitalization that's been going on for several years now. And so you see, you know, and some evidence of that is the land acknowledgments and um, more place names in the Clinkett or Haida or Simpson language. 
And so I think that the Native community has been, there's been a movement to reclaim what is ours. And this is part of that. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Jacqueline. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, of course. Have a great day. All right. Take care. KMXT Local News is underwritten in part by GCI. GCI has adjusted store hours across the state to keep our customers and employees as safe as possible during this time. The most up-to-date store hours are available on GCI.com. Insight Daily Radio. From food to fashion, science to tech talk, or for just plain fun, we've got you covered. From the art of all things, here's Lasana Jeffries. The basic principles of electricity generation were discovered during the 1820s and early 1830s by the British scientist Michael Faraday. His method is still used today. Electricity is generated by the movement of a loop of wire or disk of copper between the poles of a magnet. Thomas Edison built the first power plant, and in 1882, his Pearl Street Power Station in New York sent electricity to 85 buildings. And the first successful electric car was built in 1891 by American inventor William Morrison. Electricity travels at the speed of light, about 300,000 kilometers per second. A spark of static electricity can measure up to 3,000 volts. The average taser emits 50,000 volts of electricity. And a bolt of lightning can measure up to 3 million volts. And it can last less than one second. The first four common domestic items to be powered by electricity were the sewing machine, fan, kettle, and toaster. LED light bulbs use about one-sixth of the electricity that conventional bulbs do, cost about a quarter as much to use, and last about 40 times longer. A typical microwave oven consumes more electricity powering its digital clock than it does heating food. Appliances also use electricity when they're switched off. The average desktop computer idles at 80 watts, while the average laptop idles at 20 watts. As an example of how much more efficient modern appliances are, a refrigerator from the mid-80s, about 30 years ago, used four times as much electricity as a modern one. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisana Jeffries. Inside Daily Radio. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to Monday. It is the third day of October, the year 2022. The sun rose today at 8.18. It will set again at 7.37. That will give us 11 hours and 19 minutes of daylight, a loss of 4 minutes and 56 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record low for this date was 28 degrees. That was set in 2005. And our record high was 61. That happened in 1989. Currently 51 degrees. And out at the airport they are showing 71% humidity. Southerly winds to 9. 10 miles of visibility. The weather service has been calling for a 50-50 chance of rain today with mostly cloudy skies. High around 54 those southerly winds to continue around 15 and increasing to 20 tonight when they are expecting an 80% chance of rain, low around 48. And starting tomorrow, heavy rain. They expect between 1 and 2 inches of rain tomorrow, and that heavy rain is expected to continue on through tomorrow night. 
High near 55 tomorrow, low around 49 overnight tomorrow night. East winds gusting to 25 tomorrow, turning to the northeast tomorrow night and gusting to 30. Looking at our local tides, we have an outgoing tide. Our next low tide will happen at 1.54, almost 2 p.m. here on the east side. That will be a 4.2-foot tide, followed by a high tide at 8.19 this evening of 8.2 feet. Over on the west side, you have a low tide coming up at 2.40 this afternoon, a 6.4-foot tide, followed by a high tide at 8.49 this evening of 12, point, of 12 feet in Larson Bay. Well, let's check and see what the Alaska Department of Fishing Game has to tell us. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement number 39, date issued 3.30 p.m. on October 1st. There will be a 54-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Sunday, October 2nd until 6 p.m. Tuesday, October 4th in the following areas. In the east side Kodiak district, except for the inner Ugak and outer Ugak Bay sections remain closed. The outer Iakulik, Halibut Bay, Sturgeon, and outer Karluk sections of the southwest Kodiak district and the central and north cape sections of the northwest Kodiak district. As previously announced, fishermen are reminded that until further notice in that portion of the northwest and southwest Kodiak district, south of the latitude of Cape Kuliak, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by Persian gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed in commercial salmon fishing regulations and statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game Office. And, of course, the most recent salmon fisher information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour recorder phone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing in this Alaska Department of Fishing game. Mariners, here is your weather forecast for Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side. Small craft advisory for tonight and Tuesday. South winds to 20 knots today, seas to 7 feet. East 25 tonight, seas to 6 feet. And for tomorrow, east 25, seas building to 10 feet in the afternoon. For Tuesday night, northeast 30, seas to 12 feet. Over on the Shelikoff Strait, gale warning for tomorrow. Variable wind 15, seas to 4 feet today, coming up to east 25, seas to 5 feet tonight. And for tomorrow, northeast 35, seas building to 11 feet in the afternoon. And for tomorrow night in the Shelikoff, northeast 40, Seas to 15 feet. Today is your last day to take advantage of early voting, as voting day is tomorrow. But if you're driving by the assembly chambers up here at 710 Mill Bay Road from 10 a.m. all the way till 4 p.m. today, you can vote just as you would tomorrow. Your eligibility is verified. You give a given a ballot that's fed into a voting machine. And your vote is counted in the unofficial tally tomorrow night, just like everyone else's. So if you are driving by, take advantage of the last day to vote early. Here are some meetings coming up in the Kodiak Island Borough. On tomorrow, the Women's Bay Service Area Board will be meeting at the Women's Bay Fire Hall. That's happening at 5.30 p.m. On Wednesday, Fire Protection Area Number 1 Board will be meeting in the Bayside Fire Hall at 6 p.m. And on Thursday, the Kodiak Island Borough Assembly will be having their regular meeting in the Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. The Kodiak Amateur Radio Emergency Services Group will be offering an amateur radio licensing exam. Exams 
plural, on Wednesday, October 5th at 7 p.m. The exams will be held at the Bayside Volunteer Fire Department's training room. You need to pre-register, so call John Kimmel at 907-942-0741 for more information. The testing is provided at no charge. Saturday, October 8th, from 3 to 4.30 p.m., the Lutic Museum will be having a lecture about marine mammal response and the program that deals with it. That's from the Shunak Tribe Natural Resource Director, Matt Van Dale. It's free and open to all. Again, that's next Saturday, October 8th, from 3 to 4.30 p.m. in the Lutic Museum's gallery. Things are happening at the library, including the Bridge Club. That's meeting at 1 p.m. today, just about a half hour at the library. All interested players are welcomed. Also, this the library's monthly writers group will be meeting on Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. For those wanting to pursue, improve, and share their writing, it's for patrons 14 and older. Space is limited, so please call at 486-8686 to save your spot. Also on Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m., the library's famous Lego Club. Children under 10 must be accompanied by an adult. Thursdays at 10.30 a.m., the library hosts Lapsit Storytime. That's for babies 0 to 3 and their adults. Join volunteer Abby Hanna to share a story and a song with some quality time to play and socialize. And Thursday, October 6th, 3 p.m., the library's next chess club meeting. Drop in to learn, practice, or sharpen your chess skills in a cozy, friendly environment. No experience is necessary, and it's open to all ages. Again, that's Thursday, 3 p.m., the Chess Club. Don't forget the library is open from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday and from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Friday and Saturday. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT two times a day. Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and during the Midday Report at 12.20. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181. Fax us at 486-2733 or email psa at kmxt.org. 